Welcome to the Real Wolf Record Club. My name is Joe. I'm your host. This is the Real Wolf Record Club. Uh, this is the only show in all of podcast radio land that talks about music and pulls apart the albums. Um, but seriously, we do it better than all those other crappy podcasts because what we do is we take the album, we pull it apart, we give you the fine, the bones and the guts and tell you what that album is all about. And then we give it our own special ranking. But we don't do just that. What we do is we bring you interesting, unique people to come talk to us about these albums and give their own opinions and insights on the world. And that's what we're doing today. Today we are talking about an album I'm so excited to talk about. We are talking about Blood on the Tracks by Minnesota's very own Bob Dylan. Blood on the Tracks. Blood on the Tracks uh, was released in 1974, 1975 I think actually, uh, recorded in 74. And we're going to get into all that um, as you probably know, and if you don't, I'm glad you're listening to the podcast as you're about to find out. Bob Dylan is one of the great, great American musical storytellers. Speaking of storytellers, we have with us a great guest today. We have with us the wonderful, the talented, the, I was going to say enigmatic, but I actually think nomadic works too. The nomadic, independent journalist, organizer, Amelia Reno. She is with us today. She's here to talk to us about the wonderful work and writing that she's doing. But before we get into that, before we get into Bob Dylan, I want to turn it over and say hello to our panel. Everyone, how are we doing tonight? We all feeling okay about this album? We all ready to dig in? Well, I'm ready, Joe. I'm ready. Uh, I've never been more ready. I love that. That is enthusiasm <laughs> with a T somewhere in Minnesota. I love that. Uh, this is a this is a fun album. This is a really fun album, and there's so many characters and there's so many stories to pull out. And I'm so that's why I'm so excited to have Amelia with us today. Um, because if you know anything about Amelia, you may know that uh, she got her I wouldn't say her start. I don't think that's accurate, but um, you may have first seen her covering uh, Big Ten basketball, college basketball, with the Minneapolis Star Tribune, and then she turned into a travel writer and a food writer, and then. She left us, and we're going to ask you to tell us all about that. So I'd like to welcome to the Real Wolf Record Club, Amelia Reno. Amelia, welcome. I'm, I'm still just basking in the fact that I got included in the storytellers category with Dylan, which was not something that I ever imagined uh, a sentence that would be spoken. But yeah, soak, soaking it up over here. Uh, so I basically the title of the episode should be Amelia and Bob Dylan are basically the same. Amelia and Dylan. Storytellers, storytellers of our time. Storytellers of our time. The Amelia Reyna and Bob Dylan story. I love it. <laughs> That's fabulous. How are you? I'm excellent. I have no complaints. <laughs> Hanging out in, in my van here, my cargo van in uh, downtown Los Angeles in Skid Row, where I do a lot of organizing work and have made a lot of community relations here. I'm so glad you said that, that you told us where you were, because it, it's not usually a question I lead with, like, where are you? <laughs> but that was the where first one. Right is where, where literally, where are you? We're just uh, wondering. Um, you're downtown. Is that where Skid Row is? Yeah, Skid Row um, is right under the skyline of Los Angeles. That's mm -hmm. one of the things I think that makes it really striking to see is because you have l quite literally great wealth on top of great poverty um and it is quite frankly like the picture of the united states um to have both sort of intermeshed and and 
clashing against each other daily. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a striking place to be for sure. My my next comment, you went heavy quick. Uh, my next comment was going to be: Is it actually a row, or is it like an avenue, or a park, or square? And is it's it a row? Fifty squ- it's fifty square blocks. Whoa. The actual Skid Row part of Los Angeles is fixed fifty square blocks. It's massive, and it's got a lot of history um, dating back to the early 1900s. There were a lot of Skid Rows in the nation at the time. You know, it's sort of that saying that you are on Skid Row if you're sort of down on your luck. And for whatever reason, that moniker really stuck here while other areas transformed and um, some gained other names and some just changed altogether. But um, it was traditionally a place where people who um, were migrant workers or just didn't have work at the time or traveling through a lot of, you know, working aged males, if they kind of got down on their luck, they would end up in Skid Row. And the city sort of consciously decided to make it a center of resources because that's kind of what it was becoming on its own. So you see, saw all these sort of like flop house hotels show up and then later became the hub for nonprofit organizations and shelters. So you do still have like a super high concentration of that. And that's a big part of why so many people live here in this particular area, because it's a little bit easier to survive and get the things you need. So, but when you say, uh, I mean, it sounds almost like you're saying there's some, there was some government influx, whether it be social security offices, was there, I mean, is that the extent of it or was there actually a conscious like, hey, let's put these people over here as opposed to letting them somewhere else? In a lot of ways, the government created Skid Row uh, or certainly helped foster it. And actually, that's a theme in a lot of unhoused areas across the country where I was um, just a, a couple of weeks ago. I left the Oakland area. I was in West Oakland for about four months living at an unhoused community there under the I-880 overpasses. Mm -hmm. And that also was an area where the city informally, but in a very documented way, pushed people who were unhoused or who were living in their vehicles to this area, which is sort of like at the very Western edge of the city. You've got rail yards and these sprawling overpasses and a bunch of dirt and they're they kind of said, you know, go here, get out of our sight, sort of, uh, and and you'll be, you know, given some safety there, you know, some guarantee that you won't be harassed because that's what we're doing in exchange for you leaving the neighborhood corners and such. Um, and, of course, now you see in, in the case of Skid Row and in the case at Wood Street, the cities, the governments that pushed people to these areas now trying to evacuate everyone because I think at the time the government's never thought that it would get to be so big that homelessness would become such a huge epidemic um, and that Mm -hmm. these areas would be so populated and it's um, you know it's it's a, a real conundrum of this era that we're living in and you you can see that cities everywhere are just sort of treading water. Uh, nobody quite knows what to do about it. Hmm. 
And when to hear you talk about, you know, cities everywhere and people um, living in I, I, the mm. phrasing unhoused community, I, I like that because it gives a very accurate picture of what it is. It's not just homelessness as an ism that we have to fight. It's a it's an existence. It's an unhoused existence. But but I think there also is an idea, at least on people who are housed, who are not seeing it on a day to day basis of, well, those people those people live there let's push them out of our site who are the people that you are encountering when you visit these and report on these unhoused communities you see all different kinds of folks in this situation you see people who were housed for many years who had steady jobs many people who still have steady jobs i think that there are certainly themes that cut through um the types of individuals um, and those are the folks that really had a lot of lifelines cut for them, folks who have been the victims of massive discrimination, folks who have massive trauma and never received the help from the mental health care system that they needed, folks who have physical disabilities, a lot of addiction issues that have never had access to more than, you know, maybe a one-sided abstinence only shut yourself inside a box type treatment but you've got lawyers and architects and nurses um, just trying to think of some of the folks that I've met um, and, and what they've done in their lives people who I think are truly geniuses would test as geniuses um, one of my friends here I would I would put him in that category and he reads about uh, 163 books a year and retains, I think, 90% of it. I mean, he's explaining every book he's reading to me all the time. So there is really, I think, a wide variety of the types of people who are experiencing this. We do lose sight of that. And um, we fall into the stereotypes. And it's, it's easy to do when you, when really, I mean, our societies are super separated. There's not a lot of like accidental encounters between the house world and the unhoused world besides the person on the corner asking you for your change which of course you'll see a lot of people literally act as though that person doesn't exist you know to to avoid that interaction well and it's it's pretty clear i mean from your work and obviously listening to you talk about your experience that a lot of what a lot of what your work focuses on or your writing focuses on is this this idea of being seen what what is it about being seen mm-hmm. that that drives your work that compels your work? Well, I think we're talking about communities that um, experience the phenomenon of being unseen more than most. It's a topic of conversation with so many of the folks that I've um, you know lived in the community with or gotten to know. Talking about folks who will will drive by with their cameras out, but don't, don't want to step in, you know, are terrified to step into the camp, um, who really sort of treat people like animals. I've seen people here in Skid Row, you know, ostensibly trying to do something good, but rolling through in a car and literally throwing socks out the window. I saw one car one time that had a sign, please do not approach the vehicle. And they were throwing socks at people. And whether or not, you know, whatever their intentions were, there's COVID going on. So there's all sorts of context there, but not realizing the impact of something like that and um, the optics of something like that 
um, can, you know, it can be more damaging than any help that was done by that pair of socks reaching an individual who needed a pair of socks. I, ha I, I one of the things that I've done um, in some of these communities is I'll just do like little mini profiles on different folks that I get to know. And I just finished one on my friend Lydia who lives at Wood Street in Oakland. And I read it to her a couple days ago. I haven't posted it yet. And she cried and she said, thanks for seeing me, Amelia. And I do think that above anything else that we feel like we could do to help, seeing someone, seeing their humanity, taking the time to talk to someone human to human is the greatest impact for both people. Because I think there's a lot for the housed community to learn from the unhoused world as well. And I think you, you hit on something that you know, if you haven't encountered those communities, if you haven't encountered people on a regular basis, there's a tendency to assume that, okay, Amelia's here at one point writing, covering sports, and then she disappears and goes off and it must be a life of, of loneliness. And, and really it sounds like you're encountering in Bob Dylan's album, Blood on the Tracks, it, it would be characters, but these are obviously people, actual human beings. Um, it, it doesn't seem to be the case that, that, your work or your life has been very solitary over the last few years. Is that fair? It goes in spurts and waves. So, um, yeah, the last, um, especially six months of my life have certainly mm -hmm. not been solitary. I'm often, why the last six months? What about that? Well, just because I've been living in, in a, within a community at Wood Street for four months mm -hmm. and it's not a community the way we talk about, modern day housed neighborhoods in which maybe say hi to your neighbor a couple times a month um maybe run into them while you're walking your dogs a community like this is i think out of desire for community and companionship and also out of necessity incredibly intertwined um so when you're living in a community like this not only is there a lot of working together, problem solving, troubleshooting, so also just like tons of crisis management because you are living in an environment in which a some folks who really have nowhere to go, um, who have reached the end of the line in terms of mental health care it's 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 where they go and you know the higher functioning community members with all of their own struggles have to be the sort of triage that our institutions aren't handling um we also had while i was living there a ton of of really scary arson um and then also because this is sort of this off the grid place that the cops the uh, to some degree sort of have this hands-off approach to um you have a lot of outsiders who come in to do their dirty work you know um and so you you have gunfire and all sorts of stuff that goes on so i mean out of necessity you're you're incredibly intertwined with this community you're in constant contact with everybody um it is not solitary it's the opposite of solitary that was a long explanation of that but there are certainly other times living in a van where um i'll be you know on the road by myself for long stretches 
sometimes driving through extremely rural or places or you know the wilderness of Baja and 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 you can be very very alone um, with the stars and just pure quiet and no other humans those are two wildly different experiences on the same journey but I like them both and I need a balance of them both I really value being able to be part of a community especially in this era I think it's becoming more and more rare um, and I also really really value being alone on the open road <laughs> <laughs> well and I, I say this this with the most utmost respect obviously for what you're doing um, but you would not be the first modern American to decide that they've had a they 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 want to try something new. I don't want to say they've had enough, but they want to try something new and and kind of strike out and eschew some of the you know, we talked house versus house unhoused and things like that, but try something different. You're living in a van on Skid Row. Um wh- what what is it that compels you to keep going? Cuz I know you're about to embark on another trip, more of a kind of step back from the the reporting piece. Um, but what is it that keeps you going on that? A rolling thing stays in motion. I don't know. I mean, uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to quote uh, Thoreau <laughs> or something, and I would have been really impressed. <laughs> the momentum. Um, I am constantly um, surrounded by inspiration, both human and nature. Um, it has been a wild journey in a lot of ways and um and I've changed a lot as a person and I've grown a lot as as a person as I've realized what I'm what I'm capable of what I'm capable of enduring in some cases you know there's something about that that feels really good there's something about not knowing what's ahead um even if it's difficult that is exciting um I don't know I mean I don't it's I think it's a hundred different things for me because every experience is really different and what drives me towards one thing is not the same thing that drives me towards the other but I really do love life um and I really do I mean, it's a, it's a weird thing to say in 2021. We almost, we're not supposed to love life anymore, but I do. I enjoy, I enjoy the living experience. Um, and I love that in this weird reality I've scrapped together that I kind of get to do what I want. And I think um, life has been wildly interesting for the last four years. and sometimes to the point where it's exhausting and I feel like I need to retreat for a couple months, which is what I'm about to do. But, um, but every day is interesting. That's a, that'll be a secondary title of the episode is, uh, Amelia Reno. I like living <laughs> period. Like living. I like I'm not living. supposed to say this anymore, but I like living. I like living. Um, <laughs> obviously this album we're talking about this week, uh, blood on the tracks is an album filled with moments and characters and stories. What's a moment or a person that's inspired you? throughout all this since i'm on skid row um i will bring up my friend um pastor blue it's because of him that i can stay here and feel some measure of of safety and protection um i got to know him about a year and a half ago 
and he's become a very dear friend since then. But this is a person who is getting none of the recognition, but is really doing a lot of the things that I think the surrounding well-funded organizations are not, which is troubleshooting in the streets in real time, um, which is providing comfort and prayer. Um, He's sort of like a non-denominational spiritual type, but um, we are surrounded by a lot of despair here. Um, And someone being able to be the sort of steady hand and um, the guiding light and the inspiring fire um, and the big bear hug for someone, um, the value of that cannot be understated. He has amazing stamina, patience, resilience, and optimism, given that he lives here out of his van in the heart of Skid Row all the time. Um, he deals with more um, crisis, chaos at his workplace, you know, than most people in the US, I'll, I'll just say. And he's remarkably steady um, to the point where he even has space to listen to me sometimes with my problems, which which feels like nuts, you know what I mean? Um, But yeah, he inspires me because while he's not getting any of the grant money, you know, he's not getting any of the, um, you know, he's not getting a a dip in the, the big California pool of money to address houselessness. He is a heavy, heavy, heavy lifter and it's super cool. It's super cool. Super grassroots. And um, those are the individuals that keep people together, keep entire communities together. He's certainly part of that here. Pastor Blue, we see you. Now, we've got some of the light stuff out of the way. So we're going to dig into yeah, right. uh, one of our favorite parts. now we get heavy. Now we get heavy. One of our favorite parts of every interview, of course, is uh, if you don't know, then you better find out. It is Ched Talk. Ched Talk. You might wonder if you haven't listened before what Ched is. Well, it's not what Ched is. It's who Ched is. Ched is our wonderful, lovely, real wolf, record club wolf. Uh, you can buy him on all of our T-shirts at our link. Go to our website, realwolfrecordclub.com. Follow us for links. Uh, I think there's links. I, I always want to say links on the apps. For some reason, that sounds like a phrase that we should be saying these days. It's not because I'm like the least techie guy ever. But you can follow us on Twitter at realwolfrc on Twitter, Instagram, realwolfrecordclub.com or realwolfrecordclub.com is the website you can go to and you can buy some shirts with Ched on them, our very own Ched. Our friend Ward Sutton designed all the art. You can go there and get some. But Ched Talk is the time where we dig into the heavy stuff with all of our guests. So Amelia, are you ready for Ched Talk? Uh, hit me. <laughs> All right, let's take you back. Uh, You covered Big Ten basketball for a major metropolitan newspaper. What is the worst campus in the Big Ten to eat food on? Illinois. Um, (laughs) Well, actually, no, wait. You know what? (laughs) I'm going to say West Lafayette because I I wouldn't even – this is what I did when when they played Purdue. I would stay in Indianapolis and make the 
hour and a half journey. Oof. Yeah, that. Ouch. Major major shade thrown. But one time <laughs> that almost uh, that almost bit me in the ass because it, there was a massive snowstorm and I almost didn't make the game. And I was trying to explain to my editor, he's like, "Why didn't you just stay in West Lafayette?" And I'm like, "Can't get a decent sandwich there." <laughs> Uh, awesome. All right. Following up what may be the, the uh, weirdest question that's ever been asked on Real World Record Club. Uh, just wait for it. Um, you, I understand your van has a name. Your van is named Birdie. Um, Birdie. How long have you lived inside of her? <laughs> <laughs> I've lived in the bowels of Birdie um, for about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And all right, uh, you're moving to an apartment. Uh, this is not Chad Talk. This is digression. You're moving to an apartment for four months in Buenos Aires. Who watches Birdie? She's going to stay at Skid Row. Pastor Blue is going to watch Birdie, start her every once in a while. Ah. Birdie's kind of hurting right now. Her transmission is a little uh, not great. <laughs> uh, that's, mechan- that's professional mechanical talk. Got it. Uh, happiest moment you have to pick one you can't hem and haw and give me six happiest moment that you've had while living out of a van hey okay in baja california mexico i was driving i found this little secret beach that um you had to like tumble off of the highway down this motor- steep motorcycle path to get to and then you just don't think about going up for a while but it was the most amazing little hidden beach um nobody around tons of like shells and driftwood and little animals and cactuses right up to the water um tons of stars and i built a bonfire and i had the only things that i had to eat in the van which was like beans and uh tortillas and it was wonderful Mm. Mm. uh well then that leads into my next question which was the best meal you've had while living nomadically i'm guessing god damn it i was gonna say that one (laughs) Um, <laughs> that can be the answer. Beans oh, and, and tortillas. Uh, no. It, stop. Start over. Okay. Same trip, Baja, California. I was traveling with a friend from El Salvador at this point. We came to this rural beach, and there was a little fishing shack. Mm. And we um, stalked them. And we saw them go out really early in the morning. And then we stalked them. When we came back, we, like, attacked their vessel and um convinced them to take us out the next day and we went out and we pulled in about i I don't know 85 huge lobsters and we um we built a little bonfire and we had a grate over it and we just put lobsters butter um and i had some um white wine from the guadalupe valley Mm. and they also had stone crab claws so we did that and we had like a little mustard dipping sauce mm. uh, that was living that's that's better than tortillas and beans i hear that sometimes hear the tortillas that. and beans just hits right <laughs> but you know lobster over the ocean is kind of nice too all right amelia our last one and this one's a little bit big one thing about van living that no one knows but everyone needs to know you shit in a bucket <laughs> And there. And there. then you have to do something with it. <laughs> and there is the title of our episode. 
Amelia Reno shits in a bucket. I love it. That was Ched Talk. Uh, we want to thank our guest, Amelia Reno. Amelia can be followed. I believe right now the best way to follow Amelia is on her Instagram. Is that right, Amelia? Yeah. A-M-E-L-I-A-R-A-Y-N-O at Amelia Reno on Instagram. Uh, you're going on your trip, Buenos Aires. Are you going to update? You're going to tell us what you're doing and when you come oh, back? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, every, I mean, I, the, the fun thing about Instagram is you kind of get pulled along on the journey. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know all of what Buenos Aires holds except for shitting in a toilet, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, people will definitely come along to Buenos Aires with me. Love it. Well, Amelia, we, we are so thankful you took time to spend time with us and, and come talk a little bit about your life and where you're going. Uh, we are so happy to follow along. Make sure you support and follow Amelia Reno. Uh, she has a Patreon page, account, a thing. Hmm? You can go on Patreon and follow all her writing. You can find her on Instagram. Uh, we'll be back in just a minute. Our guest today was Amelia Reno. This is The Real Wolf Record Club. Welcome back to The Real Wolf Record Club. This week we're talking about Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan. A great American album. We we just finished up with our friend Amelia Reno, who's a nomadic independent journalist and organizer, living out of her van in Skid Row, L.A. Uh, obviously, two great American storytellers are the subject this week, uh, this episode, Bob Dylan and Amelia Reno. But let's dig into the album. Let's dig into the album. Ben, while we were on break, you were telling us how excited you are to talk about this album. I want to first start out like we always do. What is everyone's experience with this album? Ben, what is your experience with this album, Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan? Well, my experience is I, I've listened to it, and that's because I do already own it on vinyl. Full disclosure. Full disclosure. So if we're looking at a rating system, bury it, borrow it, buy it, buy it again. I'm already squarely in the camp of buy it because I've bought it. I've, I've listened to a lot of the tracks. I've listened to the whole album because that's that vinyl experience that you get this to me is is a driving album you can put it on you can hit some miles on the road it's not really an album that i've played loud and i don't know how else to describe it other than it's not necessarily an album to be played loud it's just an album to listen to um there's other albums that you do the spinal tap and crank it to 11. <laughs> this isn't one of them mm. Ryan, what is your your experience with Blood on the Tracks? Is it one you've played loud? Is it one you've played at all? It, it, it's the opposite of Ben. It is one I have never played at all. Um, I have pretty limited experience with this album. Um, only after I listened to it uh, was I realizing that I was familiar with a couple of the tracks. Um, but that was it. Just a couple, two out of ten. Um, never listened to this album in its entirety. A little surprising to me um, because I listened to such a wide range of music and um, growing up in Minnesota, Bob Dylan is a very familiar name. I remember learning about him in, in elementary school. I mean, we talked about Bob Dylan. but I, That's, a, that's I, almost a sin, a, a, a Catholic sin. They teach you in elementary school about Bob Dylan when you grew up in Minnesota and you don't listen. play Bob Dylan. The propaganda starts early. <laughs> We, we can get into the reasons why a little bit later, but he's never been that type of person I, I sought out. But um, I'm, I was curious to find out what I what I thought about this album. Um, it, you know, mm. wasn't really sure what to expect, but was pretty excited to dig in and 
see if it was something I liked. Hannah, you did not grow up in Minnesota, so you I didn't did have not. the early, early indoctrination. What was your experience with Bob Dylan and Blood on the Tracks? Uh, I am experienced with this album. This album is played often in my home. Um, every once in a while, I feel like it gets dug back out and played to death. So I <laughs> I know it well. I have never really like sat down and considered the music or examined it very closely before, but I, I know this album quite well. And therein is our first Real Wolf Record Club Easter egg. What home is Hannah talking about and where and who is playing Bob Dylan Blood on the Tracks so frequently? Uh, turning, so let's get into it. Let's get into it. Let's talk about, let's talk about the album. We always go with the highs and the lows. The highs of this album. The best song. And, and I think the peaks on this album, I would argue, are going to be as high as anything we've, we've considered so far. Um, Hannah, it's an album you listen to a lot. It's an album you've got some experience with. What is your favorite song off of this album? Oh, easy, hands down, Buckets of Rain. Hands I, down, Buckets of Rain. I love that song. I think it's an incredible song. I, but what, what learning, about the song? Oh, what about the song? Well, so I'm learning as, you know, we're, you know, having our, our little get-togethers here. I really like finger-picking guitar. Um, when I think about it, I'm like, there are other songs that where the guitar is finger-picked and I if that's the correct term to work, to use. And I really enjoy that a lot, I guess. Um, but in this song, I really feel like it creates a feeling of tenderness with the music. And what I hear when I listen to this is a song about love and its impermanence, but also at times the permanence of that feeling. You know, Bob Dylan is talking about seeing people disappear, people come and people go, but he continues to talk about taking you with me um and he, you know the fact that he'll be there and um he'll always be around so it is um just a really i think the lyrics are really wonderful in that song they're they're sad um but they're also very sweet well and it's it's interesting too you kind of hit on one of the themes um that that plenty of other podcasts uh a lot of people have considered this album this album is just very widespread and woven throughout our shared american music history uh but a lot of people talk about is this a breakup album is this a concept album you know talking about anton chekhov's short stories that's what bob says other people say no that's this is a breakup album if whatever it is it's clear this song is talking kind of what you're you're saying uh hannah that at the end of something, there's a feeling of permanence and an equal measure's impermanence. You're losing something, but you'll always keep something. And, and I think I think you're right. That's a really powerful element in the song Buckets of Rain. Interesting that you say it's head and shoulders above the rest. I'm curious to know if, if Ryan, you agree. Uh, what was your favorite song on this album? Well, I don't, I don't disagree that that's a good song, but my favorite song was Shelter from the Storm. That to me was a song that was head above the rest. And I think that the more you get into this album um, and the, and the various fans that are out there, the, the Bobaholics out there, you'll realize that, you know, you ask so many different people, 10 different people what their favorite song is, you might get 10 different songs. Um, but to me, Shelter from the Storm is so good just because of the lyrics. I felt like this was just the absolute epitome of a song that transcends 
um, that lyrical and, and poetry line more than anything else. It, it can really connect with people. Um, myself, as a person who isn't really a, a Bob Dylan fan from, from the start, I found that it was a very easy song to, to gravitate towards, to really latch on to. The chorus is lovely. I found it very warming, um, repeating that you know, come in to get shelter from the storm was just a just a just a cool line that I felt like was really relatable. Well, and that's it's you've hit on it too that uh, this song features one of the it's almost an incantation that that Bob has in some of his music throughout all of his albums. He has that incantation where he just repeats the same little hook and then fills in and it's it's really pretty remarkable how well nothing ever sounds repetitive despite it being extremely repetitive. Uh, ben you you get the option here. Have either of them hit your favorite song yet? And if not, what is it? Uh, man, I'm, I'm going to have to go with Ryan. And I, I agree with what both of you said. And I, and I, I want to talk about something here at the Real Wolf Record Club that I, that I really appreciate. And it's the way that when you dig into something, you can reach the same conclusion, but follow an entirely different path. I'm like Hannah in that I think this is head and shoulders above the rest on the album. And I, I like what Ryan w was saying too ab about, and, and you, Joe, about some of that repetition. And I think it's really intentional. Why I like this song so much in the context of the album is I, I am making a point of discussion here that this is the only love song on the album. And I say that because if you if you listen to the other tracks, there's a lot of different themes there. There's loneliness, there's shame, there's sadness, there's anger, uh, you know, idiot wind. I mean, that's a folk diss track. <laughs> but here you have this song that really has this dichotomy. It's these recurring situations of need and then that simplicity and contrast through come in, I'll give you shelter from the storm. Come in, she says, I'll give you shelter from the storm. What I keep coming back to is that there's this, this need to have kind of that rock, that stability and that source in your life that, that says, don't worry about it, I got it. And then on the same, same side, there's kind of this contrast and this repetition of come in, I'll give you shelter from the storm. It's a simple act. And it's just kindness. And I, it just hits me. I mean, I've, I've literally cried listening to this song, like real tears <laughs> dropping down. And I think it's partially just because of that, that massive effect that even just a little bit of kindness can have. And I, I love what Amelia was talking about when she talked about people on Skid Row or wherever she's been that it's not just about throwing socks out the window. It's about being seen. And I think that that being seen is the true act of kindness. It is that come in, I'll give you shelter from the storm. And uh, to me, that's just the most incredible part of the song. And as we experience music, and as I, I will continue to say, that we each have a deeply personal experience with music. And I can distinctly remember the first time that I realized this song, I don't know if it's the first time I listened to this song or heard it. The first time I realized this song, I was asleep in a car. My dad was driving and we were on a long car ride and it was early morning. 
and it was one of those kind of dreary fall rainy days and i distinctly remember being woken up by this song and i it, it was just like this strange experience of like the situation entirely matching the experience of that of that song and it was just like you know nasty outside and here's this like beautiful song about bringing shelter from the storm and you just you listen to it and you realize that it's not just about staying dry <laughs> i mean in its most simple way it's, it's really about that love and kindness i just found that so amazing and continue to find it amazing and that's why i love the song mm. it's interesting you bring up that with you know saying you were in a car your dad listening to it because this is a great moment for a pop-up and pop culture Pop-up and pop culture is where we reference and point out things that you may not have noticed. And one of the things I never noticed until just coming back to this album a few years ago was uh, at the end of the movie, the Bill Murray movie, uh, St. Vincent. It's that heartwarming movie where he befriends Melissa McCarthy's child and helps him get through a tough time. Uh, Bill Murray, with a cigarette hanging out of his, 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 uh, on his, off his lip in the backyard, is mumbling a song. Over and over, come in, she said, I'll give you a shelter from the storm. Shelter from the storm. That was a pop-up in pop culture. So it made me think of perhaps the image you've described. Is it a rainy, dreary fall day? Little Ben riding with his dad. And I can picture Charlie humming along to this song. Well, let's let's flip it then. You have to pick a last. There's got to be a last. You could say you love it all, but let's pick a last. What is your least favorite song on this album? Uh, Brian, I'm going to start with you because on the positive side of things you referenced a song that is a bit repetitive and in, in, like i said an incantation or a chant or a hum or a mantra almost what your least favorite song seems to kind of run counter to that what was your least favorite song and why yeah yeah joe you're right uh my least favorite was lily rosemary and the jack of hearts um you know this song i will, I will preface by saying had had great storytelling lyricism like a lot of bob dylan songs and a lot of songs on this album Another pop-up and pop culture moment, by the way, is this is apparently being made into a movie. This entire song? Well, I can this believe song. that, Joe, because it is very long. Um, <laughs> I, I got bored in the nine minutes and however many seconds this song is. And as, as much as I tried to follow along, um, I eventually just kind of tuned it out because, yeah, it was just kind of a meandering song telling a story that I eventually... Um, kind of lost interest in. So hopefully I like the movie more. Um, that would be great. Maybe I'll be mm. a little more engaged. Well, and that's the risk of, of the long songwriters. And I'm thinking of modern-wise, you know, the War on Drugs, a band like that, or, you know, classic music, you know, Neil Young and Bob Dylan. They run the risk of that long song, that long story, where some find it artful and captivating and compelling. Others find it to be just a drone and a slog. And it sounds like that's what you found here. Um, Hannah, you had to pick one. What's your I least favorite song? I had to pick song? one. I didn't want to pick one, but <laughs> it was tough because I liked the entire album, but it was you know kind of like, well, it's all good, so which one is the least good? I picked You're a Big Girl Now. I guess the hook on this song was kind of my least favorite uh, I didn't find the lyrics as captivating as the rest of the songs on the album, such as it's a price I have to pay. You're a 
big curl all the way. <laughs> I wouldn't do it for me. <laughs> um, I personally think Bob Dylan is just a fabulous lyricist. Um, but this one just wasn't wasn't his most impressive body of work, in my humble opinion. It, it is a little, in, I guess the word would be infantilizing a little bit. You're a big girl. You're a big girl now. I mean, it's just... And, and and again, if you put a context or a lens on this, that this is a breakup and you are trying to condescend or patronize to somebody you were previously romantically you connected with. You have achieved that. You yeah. have achieved it. You're a big girl now, aren't you? Um, all the way. No, all the way. Uh, that that was oddly, that was my choice too. Uh, you're a big girl now. I actually didn't like, love the chorus too. It kind of felt a little whaley for me. Uh, so I agree with everything you said there. Ben, least favorite on this album yeah the the rotten egg for me was if if you see her say hello and i think if i think for an album that has so many at least presents so many subtly different different genres i think there's some folk there's some blues there's some bluegrass even in this album this song for me was the by far the least compelling it kind of lacked a lot of pace it seemed like it really slowed you down towards the end of the album, like you're running out of steam. That doesn't help that it would be a a track that I would skip to get to Shelter from the Storm. (laughs) Uh, But overall, I thought it was, and it almost sounds like it's a a caricature of Bob Dylan. He's, He's really, I don't know if emotional is the right word, but it's, it's kind of like over the top Bob Dylan for me. If you've ever, I will, not a, not a counterpoint, but I will say, if you've ever experienced heartbreak in the truest sense of heartbreak, the phrasing to me, uh, that's, an, that's an, interesting way, an interesting way to take it. Um, the phrasing to me is pretty powerful, I will say, not to dissuade you, but if you see her say hello, imagining that coming from someone experiencing a little bit of regret or loss in their world, oof, oof. Powerful, nonetheless. Well, I want to turn it over here to to one of our segments that we like to do. Uh, obviously, it, it would be it would be uh, malpractice to not talk about the lyrics, to not talk about the lyrics on an album by Bob Dylan because that's everybody's talked about it so far. What are the lyrics? It speaks to me. It's powerful. It's captivating. It, it drives me. It inspires me. So we have to talk about it. And with that, we will turn to our resident word nerd, Hannah. Hannah, you're the word nerd. Tell us about the lyrics of this album. This might be a little corny, but I uh, referred to this album as a lyrical smorgasbord. <laughs> I think. Uh, well, uh, hold on a second. I told everyone very clearly no more references to musical lasagna and no more references to lyrical smorgasborgs. And here we are. And here we are at the Bob Dylan Buffet. <laughs> the Bob Dylan Buffet. Go carry on. Like I said before, I find Bob Dylan to be a very lyricist. So I was having a hard time choosing something because in my mind, I'm like, this is all good. Um, so what happened is I was actually doing a little reading about the album. I was cruising through a article from the New Yorker that came out in like 2018, I think examining the release of more blood more tracks and I had the album playing in the background like not totally like paying attention to it just kind of ambient music 
Um, and the article came to a point where it focused on the lyrics. Uh, he woke up, the room was bare. He didn't see her anywhere. He told himself he didn't care, pushed the window open wide, then felt an emptiness inside to which he just could not relate brought on by a simple twist of fate, which comes from the song, simple twist of fate. Um, and then it couldn't have been more than 15 seconds later, all of a sudden my ears picked up those lyrics being sung by Bob Dylan right next to my head. And it was just such a funny coincidence that like, I happened to be at that part in that article reading those words, like right before, like the song, that part of the song came on and I wasn't even paying attention. So it caused me to stop and just look at those lyrics a little closer, consider, consider them further. And the lyrics are really, I mean, they're pretty crushing lyrics. When we're talking about things happening by twist of fate, we're talking about something that's happening by chance in a stranger, unfortunate way. And in this case, for whatever reason, this relationship wasn't working out and our protagonist sounds like he's possibly hurt or angry um, by the crumbling relationship. And he's trying to move on and, you know, smother whatever remaining embers of affection or love that still remain. It's a bummer of a song, man. But yeah, I just, I ended up picking that. I thought that was, it was just a funny little coincidence that happened and those lyrics really stuck with me. So that was my choice. Well, and there's a sparsity of description too. I think it'd be tempting to say that this album with all, you know, the long songs and the number of couplets and lyrics that there are that he uses a lot of words, but when you hear a lyric like that, a little verse like that, he's not saying, there's not a lot of words to it. And it is giving you a very clear picture of somebody waking up, realizing the person they thought was there is not there opening the window and pretending it doesn't bother them. I mean, that is just powerful stuff. Uh, full disclosure for me, I would have gone with, I'm not saying you're wrong as the word nerd, uh, but I would have gone yeah. with one of the most powerful lyrics in my mind on this album is from Buckets of Rain. Uh, life is sad. Life is a bust. All you can do is you do what you must. You do what you must do and you do it well. To me, uh, this this lyric took on particular resonance for me in the last couple of years. You know, the world's gone a little haywire in some places, a lot of places. And that, that song was, that lyric was just super powerful. That doing the best you absolutely can in a crazy, crazy world. But before we end the segment, I want to turn to you, Ben. You've got, you've got something that you think might twist, uh, put a little twist, perhaps a point of discussion on the words of Bob Dylan. Hannah, I, I really would like your opinion here. As the resident word nerd of the Real Wolf Record Club, I think all of us would agree that Bob Dylan is quite the lyricist. He's got a lot of, of content for word nerds to digest. But is he a good singer? And to me, Bob Dylan can sometimes sound like he's singing with a mouth guard in. A case in point of that is I listened to this album with my kids in the car as we were going to a, a drive to grandma and grandpa's. They seemed to moderately enjoy it. And when the first track played, tangled up in blue my daughter who's four years old says daddy I said yeah why is he tangled up in glue <laughs> <laughs> and i literally cannot get past that now so i have two questions for the word nerd one is is bob dylan a good singer does bob dylan's 
voice? Does his style as a singer make the music better? Or would it be better if someone else sang it? Sang his music and his lyrics. And second, do you have any favorite lyrical interpretations, let's say, a la Tangled Up in Glue? I think his voice fits his sound. I think that's the case for a lot of bands out there. The lead singer isn't necessarily like a good singer, but their voice is what makes their music what it is. People listen to it because there's something about his voice. There's something about his music that pairs together that draws people in. I mean, I think a lot of people have, can, you know, do their own, you know, little Bob Dylan impression because he has a pretty distinct sound and style to his singing. But yeah, I, you know, am I going to see him, you know, performing with Pavarotti? I'm going to guess not. Um, Pavarotti? <laughs> I don't know. I had to, I was reaching for something. That's what came to mind. But yeah, I think, I don't think anybody could do Bob Dylan's music like he could. Ben, uh, it is a great point. Is he a better singer than he's a better lyricist? Is his song or something about it detract? I think it's also an impossible question to ask because there may be some, chances are if someone says he's not a great singer, they probably don't like his music. I've been told countless times how great Tom Waits' music is. I can't get past his voice. And so I don't listen to Tom Waits. So I think if you're already agreeing you like his music, you probably already agree his music is just fine the way it is. But And anyone, what is your tangled up in glue? I have a couple of favorites um, from just from my family and growing up. Uh, I had a sister. I have two sisters. Uh, one who famously quoted Pink Floyd, another brick in the wall as no dogs or cats in the classroom instead of the the actual lyrics of no dark sarcasm in the classroom. (laughs) Oh, I see what you're going with. Oh, I, okay. I didn't understand what you meant. My other favorite was growing up. We, we had a large silver suburban that we cruised around in as a family. Um, and my other sister famously quoted the Rolling Stones beast of burden as I'll never be your big suburban. (laughs) <laughs> and it's another one of those songs that I just can't listen to the same way anymore. So does anybody on the Real Wolf Record Club panel have some favorite misinterpreted lyrics from their past? There's uh, Eddie Vedder always tells the story that uh, it was either him or Mike McCready or somebody from the Bad Pearl Jam hearing the song uh, Rock and Roll by Kiss. And it's I want to rock and roll all night and part of every day. I thought that was a great one. It's very sensible, <laughs> very sensible interpretation. Like I, I want to rock, I want to party, but you know, just a little bit during the day, you know, not all the time. You can't get crazy. <laughs> it's the rock and roll mullet. We'll call it the oh. tangled up and glue effect. That is the word nerd here on the real wolf record club. Before we move further, I want to remind our listeners, you've heard a lot of hot takes. You've heard Ben and Ryan stake out a claim on Shelter from the Storm. You've heard Hannah say, no, no, no. It's the raw emotion of Buckets of Rain. You've heard, you haven't heard what I said yet because I got a great one for you coming up. But you've also heard some of the least favorite songs. You've heard Ryan say, I don't want to see Quentin Tarantino's version of Rosemary, Lily, and the Jack of Hearts. Um, or excuse me, Lily, Rosemary, and the Jack of Hearts. Uh, 
you've heard a lot of hot takes. And one of the things we do here on the Real Wolf Record Club is everyone's in the club. Everyone's a part of the team. Everyone gets a voice. And the way you can tell us if we are right, wrong, or otherwise is you can log on and follow us. Say I say log on like it's 1997 on the internet. Dial up on the internet. <laughs> Perfect. You can log on and you can go ahead Follow us on Instagram at Real Wolf Record Club. You can go to our website, realwolfrecordclub.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Real Wolf RC. And let us know, are we crazy? Are we right? Are we wrong? Tell us what your favorite song was. Tell us what your favorite lyric was. Please join in the conversation with the Real Wolf Record Club. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more Blood on the Tracks. Let's, I, we're back here on the Real Wolf Record Club, and we're going to finish up our discussion here and give it our, our patented ranking of bury it, borrow it, buy it, or buy it again. But before we do, uh, there's a couple things I want to I wanna touch base on. Um, one of our segments is Tales from the Internet. Tales from the Internet. It's, it's obviously, and especially with an album like this, Blood on the Tracks, where it's so well... Uh, known, it's documented, it's dug into, it's pulled apart in a million different ways. It's just, it's it's a widely regarded as a classic album uh, by one of the classic songwriters of our time. That it, it'd be hard not to find something. And it would be real easy, though, to find some weird stuff, because there is weird stuff. If you Google Blood on the Tracks, you do an internet search, you will find uh, manga titles. You will find books about conspiracy theories you will find books uh or memoirs about people named brian wilson and not the brian wilson you're thinking of uh, it will be recipes involving beef beef blood it will be true crime documentaries it will be everything but the album so it'll be really tempting to go there and get really weird and wacky but we don't want to give give platform to weird and wacky we want to find the interesting stuff and i will tell you a very quick story about one of the things i find a lyric from my favorite song hands down was the song is meet me in the morning meet me in the morning uh, i think is a great blues track it's fabulous it's it's got that catchy repetitive two verse thing going on meet me in the morning 56 and wabasha and right there out of the gate my ears have always been drawn to 56th and wabasha as someone who grew up in the twin cities all our listeners nationwide uh 56th and wabasha Minnesotans hear that and they wonder, where is 56 in Wabasha? Because there is a Wabasha. There is a Wabasha Street in downtown St. Paul. But there's no 56th. Or is there? So, I began my internet search figuring out a little bit about this lyric. And I came across Zachary Drake, uh, who, who has a blog post with a variety, or a blog with a variety of topics uh, some about the movie Dune, some about different things, a uh, little stream of consciousness at times. But he wrote a blog post in February of 2021 asking this very question, and the research is fascinating. Um, if if you're listening to Dylan, you get the sense of there's the level of detail he uses in reference to people, places, time. Time is nebulous. A lot of the songs are outside of time. They're not necessarily linear. Uh, characters are sometimes named and sometimes nameless and places are always almost always off the map they're not necessarily something uh that you can point to 
perhaps intentionally and perhaps not. And, and the opening lyric, 56th and Wabasha. We've always wondered, is there a, such a place? And and the first thing you have to pay attention to is that, no, there is not a 56th and Wabasha because there is no 56th Street Avenue Road in the Twin Cities metro area, or at least St. Paul, I should say. But at one time, there was a 56, a Minnesota Highway 56 and Wabasha. And you might be thinking, well, there was, so what? Well, that highway, that Minnesota Trunk Highway 56, if you look through old Minnesota metropolitan maps, as Mr. Drake apparently did, and he consulted an urban engineer and scholar of the Twin Cities metro area to learn that from 1963 to 1974, Wabasha Street in St. Paul intersected somewhere south of downtown St. Paul with Minnesota Highway 56. It was loosely in the area of George Street and Cesar Chavez Street or possibly South Wabasha and Cesar Chavez Street. Either way, there's a restaurant called, I believe it's El Burrito Mercado. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> it's somewhere near that area. And only during those 11 years did they intersect before there was some redevelopment in the area that changed things. But what's fascinating about that is Bob Dylan wrote half of his album, Blood on the Tracks, in the Twin Cities metropolitan area after living here for a long time in December of 1974. So right during the time when he might have been sitting down to pen the lyrics, Meet Me in the Morning, 56 and Wabasha. And for those of you about to point out that while the official lyrics are 56th with a TH, I challenge you to listen to them closely and tell me if he's saying a TH. I submit that he is not. He is saying 56 and Wabasha. And is that... there a TH? Is there a TH, Joe? Is there a TH? That's listen very closely. I don't believe there's a TH. I don't think. And, and I will tell you, if you Google Mr. Drake's blog, on this this blog post it, it's a very 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 detailed well-written thesis and congrats to you mr drake because it's a great question and you've done a lot of really interesting research uh but that is the story that i found of meet me in the morning and the specific geographic intersection of 56 and wabasha and that has been tales from the internet it's time to turn to our wrap up it's time to t tell what this album has meant to us and where we rank it. It's it's not, there's no secrets in the Real Wolf Record Club. It's pretty clear where we all stand on a lot of things. This album to me has meant a lot. It's it's something that at the start of the pandemic, I found myself listening to it a lot and lyrics like those from Buckets of Rain and, and some of these other parts of the album, those moments, they were really powerful and they spoke to me. So I, I know where I stand. I know what ranking I would give it. Um, ben, you've already pushed yourself. You've already given us your high watermark, which is you already own it. What is your ranking for this album? It stays the same. I'm, I'm going to keep it a buy it. I do like it more now than I ever have after after really consuming it. But for me to to give an album a buy it again rating, the album needs to to really be something that's transformative. It's life changing to not overstate it, but something that really kind of shapes my worldview or my even my personality a bit. Uh, not that I that I center my personality around a, an album or a, or a band, but um, I don't think that this album quite has that level of appeal to me or that effect on me. 
So for that reason, I'm I'm just gonna call it a buy it. Ryan, do you agree, disagree, or what ranking do you give this album? Oh, this this was a journey for me. Um, having not really had a lot of experience with it, I started off with a, a blank slate. But um, yeah, I ended up overall with a with a buy it for this album. Um, I know this is an album that's held in really high regard by so many people and I, I think a lot of people might refer to Bob as his Bobness uh, as, as royalty almost but um, there was a lot to consider with this but uh, my take on it was you know I, I'm in the camp that I don't really think Dylan's voice or his guitar or even his harmonica are really that great they're all kind of meh to me um, you know, but the lyrics, you know, as most people gravitate towards with, with Dylan, really just, just cut like a knife for me on this album. They're, they're really good. The more you listen to it, the more you discovered. I, d I enjoy just listening to a lot of these songs over and over again, which to me is part of their criteria for, for a Bide album. Do I want to listen to this once, twice, a million times until the vinyl's worn out? Um, but you can get a lot of mileage out of this album, which, which to me put it in that buy it camp. Um, the lyrics to me really blur that line on um, just kind of poetry. And this is the first album that I will ever say, I, I use Spotify and there's a feature on there where you can, we can turn on the lyrics as you're listening to the song. But for this album, for, I don't know, a dozen times, I, I turned on the lyrics and I just stared at my phone and listened to it for 50 minutes, whatever it is, the runtime for this. Um, and that's pretty cool. It wasn't just an album I listened to. It was an album I read. And the more I listened and, and saw the lyrics at the same time, the more cool I thought it was. Kind of went from a journey on, you know, never having really experienced it to, to really digging it. So this was definitely a buy it for me. Listening to this album and staring at your phone is, is incidentally exactly how Bob Dylan intended the experience to be. <laughs> staring at your smartphone. Ah, the future. Welcome the future. Hannah, tell us, what was your ranking for this album? Buy it again. I listen to it regularly now, and I will continue to do so. I'm, I'm, it, for me, it was pretty hands down. I think this is a near flawless album. There's just, even the, even the flaws that we've pointed out, they're 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 blips. The the highs are so strong. I mean, from the opening chords, and you learn the story of changing the tuning on "Tangled Up in Blue," to the the it's it's a picking playing on buckets of rain. But it's almost you can hear him sliding his fingers hard across the strings as he plays the chords. I I think it's just such a solid album, and I, and I totally get what the hype is. Ben, I would say crank this album. It does sound really good live. Uh, it's it's just a powerful, powerful masterpiece. So I'm a buy it again as well. So I think that brings us two buy it's and two buy it agains. So no matter how you square it, somebody needs to be shelling out some dough to get this album for sure. So, And that is Blood on the Tracks. We hope you've enjoyed uh, talking with us this week on Real Wolf Record Club about one of the great albums from one of the great artists of our time, Bob Dylan, Blood on the Tracks. We hope you've enjoyed talking with our friend Amelia Reno, who is a nomadic independent journalist and organizer. You can follow her on Amelia Reno at Amelia Reno on Instagram. Please follow us on Instagram, real at Real Wolf Record Club, or follow us on Twitter, Real Wolf 
RC. Visit our website, www.realwolfrecordclub.com. You can go there and you can buy merchandise. You can learn how to sign up. You can learn how to be a part of the conversation. And that, dear listener, is perhaps the most important part. Be a voice. Be seen. Tell your story to us. We are trying to tell stories about albums to you and our experience with them. We are trying to bring you unique voices to talk about those albums. So please, be one of those unique voices. Tell us. Did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? What do you bring to the club? This has been the Real Wolf Record Club. I'm your host, and until next time, in the words of some three-year-old or four-year-old somewhere, stay tangled up in glue. This has been the Real Wolf Record Club podcast. The Real Wolf Record Club is a production of Real Wolf Productions, LLC, a limited liability company. The show is produced today by Ben Head. Our panelists were Ryan McInnes, Hannah Vantomi, and I'm your host, Joe Vantomi. Follow us and join the club on Instagram at Real Wolf Record Club. On Twitter at Real Wolf RC. Go to our website to find links to the episodes, upcoming news and information, as well as a link to buy merch from our very own Ward Sutton at www.realwolfrecordclub.com. Join us next episode when we discuss the 1967 Soul Standard, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You by Aretha Franklin.